Howdy, folks. Before we start this session of Bebop Tabletop, we just want to say thanks to all our listeners, Twitter followers, and everyone who supported us along the journey. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on your listening app of choice. It would help us out more than a sack full of oolongs. Now, hit it. Three, two, one. This is Bebop Tabletop, the podcast that's turning each episode of Cowboy Bebop into a tabletop RPG. I'm Lee Jo John. I'm Andrew Wu. And together, we're remixing the characters, music, and themes into a game we can play. Let's jam. Hola, comrades. Welcome to Bebop Tabletop, session 13. Today, we'll be covering both parts of Jupiter Jazz. So... If you're watching along with us, make sure you've watched both part one and part two, otherwise you're going to get spoiled. With me, as usual, is Mr. Lijo John. How are you doing today, Lijo? I'm very sad. This this show sometimes make, gives me too many emotions. Well, would you say that you want to feel the things all the time, or are you okay with just compartmentalizing it into a podcast form? It, it does help that I only have to deal with it for like an hour at a time, so yeah, let's keep it that way. All right, perfect. Uh, with us today, we have Jack and Meg, members of our role-playing family. Uh, we regularly play some Dungeons & Dragons together on, well, on, yeah, regularly, kind of, right? <laughs> Jack, Jack's wiggling his hand. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So we wanted to bring you on because we have been aware that for sure Jack won't shut up about Cowboy Bebop, <laughs> like ever. It's true. It's, I think about it constantly. Yeah, today, seriously, he was going on about what it was like to be, like, to see the episode for the first time. He was like, can you just imagine being a 12-year-old boy and seeing this for the first time? <laughs> I will say that while I am a Cowboy Bebop fan, like, I definitely don't have the <clears throat> tear glimmering in my eye <laughs> at every mention of, of Cowboy Bebop like he does. I, I have subjected Meg to a lot. Uh, and <laughs> This morning when we watched the episodes, I uh, I pulled up uh, Space Lion, the song, on my phone that's played on the saxophone, mm -hmm. and I just started playing it for her to summon her to the room. <laughs> yeah, he was, like, pulling a say anything. I just saw, like, a phone just, like, kind of hovering in the air, and that, like, saxophone music just kind of, like, streaming into the door. It was a nice way to start the morning. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that that qualifies as the biggest fan of Cowboy Bebop that we've ever had on the show. <laughs> including us, who started a <laughs> podcast about it. <laughs> I could take it or leave it, you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they're not only just fans of Cowboy Bebop, or super fans in Jack's case. We have been playing D&D &D together for about two years, three years now? Probably closer to four. Would you guys like to say something about your history with tabletop RPGs or just, you know, D&D &D in general? What interests you about this space? Yeah, I like tabletop RPGs because I feel like I'm nerdy, but I never was allowed to play video games when I was young. So I, I like playing games, but I feel like I can never actually play video games. So this is like a good medium for me. <laughs> you don't need any like hand-eye coordination to roll dice. I mean, I guess you need some, but like not very much. I, I, something I like about this too is that it's more social than video games. At least like when we were growing up, video games were pretty... Uh, you know, they were social, but you, like, needed people in the room with you. Whereas tabletop gaming, you absolutely need people in the room with you, right? There's no other There's no other option. Yeah, and you get to, like, you know, be creative, you know, and collaborate mm. with other people, which I can't really think of anything else in life that's like that. So that's good. That was a big thing for me. Uh, I, like, was always interested in playing, like, uh, tabletop games, like, starting, like, Dungeons & Dragons. But I didn't know, really, any of my friend group, like, nobody really played it at all until we like all got together and started playing it for the first time and then the both of you introduced us to a couple of different systems and we have our like long running like D&D campaign that we've been doing and uh yeah it's been great yeah i recently was digging through some old notes uh i was looking for jacob jordles actually which i don't have any notes about oh no uh, but i found a character that i made where like the second line in there is uh dm jack I was like, oh, this is the first 
this I think that was the very first time I'd ever played Dungeons and Dragons, and mm-hmm. you were you were my DM, Jack. <laughs> That's crazy. I do not take naturally to DMing at all. I'm not great at it. Uh, it gives me anxiety. Uh, but uh, I like wanted to play so bad, and so like I just like anybody that wanted to come to the table. Like uh, it was it was fun for us to get together and do that first session. As as bad as it, I, I remember it going. I'm pretty sure it was very rough. <laughs> I think also, so, yeah, we, we, we talked about the reintroduction to, to Dungeons & Dragons we all kind of had. And I think, Meg, you were the DM for that group as well. I think, yeah, so, and, so, and now Lijo is the, the current DM of our regular campaign. So everybody here, uh, except me, essentially, has uh, been a dungeon master for Dungeons & Dragons. For me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, we've you've done one shots, but yeah. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you guys are always like first on the first on the chopping block anytime I would do a one shot because you guys are great. <laughs> I love having you on because you're very positive. <laughs> I thought maybe you wanted to exact some revenge on us for us having like killed your characters off. <laughs> Every <just> time. <laughs> I, I apologize profusely. Are we ready for a summary of the episodes? Let's hit it. It's hot on board the Bebop. Faye stole the coolant and the money, and when Ed tries to find her, she finds something called Codename Julia instead. Spike runs off to find Julia, and he and Jet have a heated argument about the nature of their partnership. Spike searches for Julia on Callisto, and after many false starts, fights a gang. An entire gang! They think he's vicious. They don't know what vicious is. Faye meets a smooth sax of Gren at the bar. After a night of heavy drinking, Gren takes care of Faye's attackers and brings her home for safety. Spike confronts Vicious and is shot by Lynn. Faye confronts Gren and is shocked by their unexpected gender reveal. Gren reveals that Vicious betrayed them during the war on Titan and they're planning revenge. Spike remembers his past, like the last time he got shot, but this time it was just a tranquilizer. Gren confronts Vicious on a rooftop and Lynn dies. Spike joins the dogfight, Gren is shot down, and Vicious escapes. Spike fulfills Gren's last wish, and Laughing Bull sees the tear of a warrior fall from the sky. One of the things I want to start with before we discuss this episode is that uh, Gren's uh, sexual transition, I suppose, is how we can talk about it. Like, So when this show was made in 1998, uh, almost certainly the producers of this show didn't really think, didn't know... Uh, the modern discussion on on trans rights, on gender pronouns, right? uh, none of that was probably in their mind when they made this. So I think as a policy for this show, we've decided that uh, we'll discuss Gren with the pronouns they, them, just to make it a little, I, I don't know, that, that feels right. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Yeah, uh, I think so. The, the other thing, too, is that that's kind of strange is like, uh, I think the weirdest part about this is that it's not a voluntary transition, right? I think that's that's the. I think in a modern context, I think that's the weirdest part about all this. Yeah, but there is definitely that moment where Faye asks Gren, like, "Are what are you?" and Gren mm-hmm. says both. So I feel like maybe defaulting the more to the more non-binary option is. Yeah, it's not cool to have to assign somebody a, a pronoun, but I feel like if you're going to have to do it, then that's probably the... Right. I think it's, that... It's, uh, the, it's the most polite way of dealing with it, yeah. anyway, I think. Yeah, Gren has kind of like a nuanced like uh, uh, like like statement on, on it. Like, I'm both at once and neither at the same time, too. Mm. Right, yeah. Yeah, they, they do that. Like, it's, it's an interesting perspective on that. I think one of the things, uh, you know, again... Uh, we don't talk about the live-action show too often here, but one of the things that I think they did well was turning Gren explicitly into a non-binary person and also uh, removing all the, the trauma baggage, at least up to this point, that you know, Gren in this episode is embodying, right? Uh, we talked, uh, Lijo, you mentioned earlier about how you know, trans folks, queer folks tend to be plot contrivances rather than full characters and that is absolutely something that happens in this episode as well even though it's done well right mm-hmm. i think that gren is really a great character but you could still like put this situation in that same like vein where i mean they do end up dying like by the end of the episodes 
Yeah, the the common yeah the the common trope is called bury your gaze, and I mean you can you can look it up online, but the gist of it is you know queer coded and otherwise non heterosexual characters are often given tragic stories, and they usually meet a grisly end at the end of the story, the chapter, the 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 episode. And while I really do like Gren a lot, this you know there are quite a few things that are a little bit. Edgier and that probably don't need to be there, but overall, I think you know Cowboy Bebop, despite being in you know a '90s you know TV show, does hit with a little bit more sensitivity than its uh, contemporaries at the time. So, I I hate giving too much of a leeway for uh, for something problematic we love, right? It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard because I I want to give you know Watanabe and everybody the benefit of the doubt, uh, but you know obviously you know as four cis people here we uh, we don't have the the proper faculties to have a discussion about this. Uh, For sure. So so maybe this is something we may need to talk about down the road. What Gren is, I think, really interesting as a character is. And there's other instances of this throughout the series, but like, Gren is one of those characters that's like, uh, I mean, technically Gren is the bounty of the episode, mm-hmm. but a bounty that people would be conflicted about bringing in. Like, you're, I think they bring up the point that like, Gren has like the statue of limitations for mm. the crime of, you know, being a military or a spy. They right? had es- escaped from prison three years prior mm-hmm. and the, uh, it, the, the bounty, their, the, um, what is it? The statute of limitations is about to expire, up. essentially. So, so they, Big uh, Shot was yeah. offering a double bonus. <laughs> double bounty, yes, exactly. Right. And then this character, you know, is very likable. Like, then you come to realize that they were framed. Like, and so then, you know, I think that kind of brings into, you know, some of the characters might be a dilemma. I mean, none mm-hmm. of them really go for the bounty there, but it's kind of interesting to think about that as a mechanic in an RPG. Like, some of the times the bounties that you have are going to be ones that mm-hmm. it may be more beneficial for the group to just mm-hmm. say, no, we're not mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're not going to go through with that uh, just for some woolah. I, I think, yeah, one of the things, again, like, what one of the things I'm... So we're still kind of baby game developers in that we're just fighting Dungeons and Dragons still. I bring that up a decent amount on this show. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the things I'm trying to fight in Dungeons and Dragons is the power fantasy, right? This idea that, oh, all of us are just getting more and more powerful and getting more and more tools, and mm-hmm. now we can do whatever we want, right? Le- like level 20, I've never made it to level 20, but level 20 sounds awful, right? It just sounds like, <laughs> like oh, yeah. I can do anything ever. I'm an all-powerful god. And it's like, exactly. what's the point then? <laughs> right? I could play a video mm-hmm. game instead. I think one of the things we're trying to do in this game is fight that impulse. And one of the things is, as a DM or as a game master, I'd be very excited to set up bounties that make players feel bad. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Because Gren is such a sympathetic character. It's like they are not their typical criminal uh, that, I mean, is just like done some evil stuff and, and you just like collect the bounty just like your regular old like day job. And- mm-hmm. You, you feel for this character. You would definitely have some players that would still be like, whatever, though. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> I'm true. getting that bounty. <laughs> whatever our, our equivalent of a loot goblin is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, murder hobos exist in every game. You know, it, it's how it goes. Um, and I don't, I don't want to expose too much on the politics of Cowboy Bebop, but in a cyberpunk, you know, space capitalism world, it... All of it is based on human suffering. The reason there's so many bounty hunters is because it is the only job many of these people can have. So, yeah, a lot of these bounties should inherently be conflicting uh, goals. They should not necessarily... uh, Many of these people didn't do that much in terms of actual crime or evil... It's it's a it's the the concept of the lesser evil, right? And it's mm-hmm. the whole point of Cowboy Bebop is people are striving to to get by, and yes. sometimes you have to make these decisions. And often, the the crew of the Cowboy Bebop lose their bounty or don't turn it in, or the the person dies. Like, and <laughs> they're they're living, they're barely getting by. I think Faye mentions in this episode that there were, or maybe, uh, yeah, in one of the episodes, that there were only 20,000 Wulongs left in the safe. 
right? That, mm-hmm. that they are right. poor. <laughs> Throughout, throughout always, the entire, yeah. they're never not poor throughout the entire series. They, they probably miss more bounties than they get. Without a <laughs> yeah. doubt, yeah. Without a I doubt, think, they usually. I think our bounty counter, their... like successful bounty counter, is like three right now. <laughs> <laughs> Halfway through the series. Do we want to? Do we want to talk about loneliness at all? I like it. I, this is one of like the most uh, melancholic like episodes. Uh, as I, I mentioned before, we were when we were discussing like between this one and the Waltz for Venus episode, mm. like yeah. there's just like this 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 sad like like uh, atmosphere throughout all of the 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 people living on Jupiter in this town in Callisto or I mean, it's in Callisto correct yeah. on the the one of the moons right mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know it's it's kind of like this industrial like hellscape where people are just scraping by and um, you've got Faye who is like kind of like, trying to find her place really like uh she's like has this internal conflict whether she wants to belong with these group of weirdos who she's teamed up with or if she'd rather just be alone like she has been prior and uh you've got spike dealing with all of his the past issues as well even even all the side characters are like depressed the one the one dude uh, that fights everybody jumps in front of a truck Right, like, like he decides. You know what? It's not worth it. Wait, I, does he? I thought it was an accident because it sounded like he was trying to like clean up and get like a, a good job, like an actual like straight job, like after. Uh, that's what I thought after, too, but but that's not. I mean, the way cra- he was talking. the crash that happens afterwards. Yeah, I love yeah. Jet's expression uh, as he yeah. watches him just get hit by a, a truck. Essentially, oh, it's terrible. Even even Ed is depressed. Uh, she expresses for like being left out of this episode, like mm-hmm. almost completely. She has like the like so little screen time in these two episodes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think I want to just kind of tie that all into the kind of the main overarching kind of theme of Cowboy Bebop. Uh, and there are a lot of themes in Cowboy Bebop, but because guess what? It's a very good show. Um, but one theme I've been considering is the is loneliness and I, I joked about being sad at the beginning of this uh recording but most of the main characters in the show are lonely and we see that in the way that they interact with each other and whether or not they they trust each other and that they are relatively lonely together they keep lashing out uh because they're not ready to trust we for of course Faye uh ab- attempts to abandon them uh, takes the money and bails, you know, breaks the ship. But one scene that really kind of hurt is when Spike hears Julia and bolts, and Jet is trying to stop him, and Jet is saying, you know, it's not worth it, and Spike lashes out at Jet and goes, something, I, I don't remember the exact line, but then Jet kind of, Jet is clearly affected, and he's like, well, you're not coming back if you go chase after her and and Spike's like yeah that's fine you know obviously I was only here because you were lonely and Jet Jet you know you can see the you can see the gears turning and the hurt uh, yeah, be- between all of them and so throughout the series you know yes they're friends but they also are struggling to connect with each other and I mean that's the very human thing and I you know and if we're and yes I know this is something impossible to add to a an, you know an RPG but I do you think there is a way we could incorporate it at all I mean I just when when I what I think about what I like about tabletop RPGs is my favorite part is just the character building and like thinking about like my backstory and I've always felt like I mean thinking about this project you guys are working on the it, it seems like the the four characters in your story it's almost like a a and d like origin story of like four mm. weirdos just getting together for the first time and going through these like adventures together and uh, learning to interact with each other and i i think that like having that that loneliness could be part of like a good like uh like character build in someone's backstory potentially Another component is, of course, we are still working on the character creator aspect of it, but we've we've discussed major pillars because every character kind of follows three main pillars. There is the what were you doing before, kind of how did the world betray you, how did the world screw you, and then how do you move forward, how do you carry that weight, you know? And 
inherently the, the way we structure that there is probably trauma in your past and you know none of us here are licensed therapists but uh, generally bounty hunting is probably not the healthiest way to cope i was gonna say you could incorporate just kind of like the vibe of the episode by you know starting a bounty off where you do split the whole party and they all have to like find their way back to each other somehow either through pursuing the bounty or doing their own thing or whatever but you know that could be part of the module design. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like that idea of... So last last week we talked about Toys in the Attic, right? Uh, the horror-themed episode, which uh, not a traditional bounty by any means, right? Since it's self-contained on the ship. But since, Meg, you mentioned that uh, splitting the party up and then making them deal with the loneliness like we've been discussing is an interesting way to do a horror episode as well, right? It's it's more of a psychological drama. It's more of a, uh, I mean, I suppose, you know, m- Mushroom Samba is coming as well. So you infuse that with a drug drug bender of some kind and suddenly you've got this soup of a a module, a soup of a session where everyone's dealing with their inner demons alone, yet hunting together right that that's hmm. that feels like that crosses a lot of cool themes that this show presents yeah for sure i think this episode like really shows um there's i mean there's a lot of con there, in this episode is the first time that there's a lot of conflict like between mm-hmm. the main characters it causes them to all kind of split up and go of their own routes throughout this story um and that all they all kind of end up somewhat uh, pursuing Gren, this bounty, in mm-hmm. some way, and they all take kind of different routes to get there. And I think that's always kind of interesting when uh, there's that, I mean, there's in kind of like a trope in, in D&D to not split the party, mm-hmm. but inevitably those moments do happen. And there's always some interesting things that usually happen when you have a singular character or maybe two characters go off on their own. Uh, it could be something interesting to explore. Yeah, we don't know yet. Uh, since, you know, we, we have not, done any major playtests of this yet. Uh, we don't know yet if Hardys will tend to split or stick together and whether or not that's manageable. Right? I think the main reason in Dungeons & Dragons that you don't split the party and that DMs will punish you for doing so is that, yeah, the DM can't really manage both parties at the same time. That's just really, really difficult to do at one table setting. <laughs> and of course, the other issue is if you have three groups of people doing things, there are going to be long moments of time where the other half of the group is not doing anything. So mm-hmm. while you focus on, you know, this this encounter and that, it it does suck the game out or suck the fun out of the game when you are uh, excluding a couple characters. Mm-hmm. We 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 focus this game for people who are cool, basically, <laughs> the people who are who are willing to role play and willing to give other people time. So like, I don't imagine this will be a huge problem because I think even in a group, if you are conscientious enough, you will give these people time to, to, to role play, to build up their characters. I, I always do have the problem that, you know, when you think about, you know, the worst person you know playing this game and how they would do what they would do, yes, yeah, sometimes I, I wonder if we need to be more strict and more crunchy with our rules. Um, and that, that is something that I personally struggle with in the game dev development, but also I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to restrict reasonable players too much. Yeah. I, I was having this conversation with Jack earlier because this episode definitely brings up some things and, you know, you talking about rules is kind of reminding me of it. Like the setting here on Jupiter that they've established is that, you know, you've got a planet that's lawless. You've got, um, there's no women anywhere. So being there and being a woman character is inherently dangerous. And I think there's a reason. I mean, I think there's multiple reasons that they left Ed out of the episodes just because it, you know, isn't an appropriate environment for that character. And, and also it's not really an appropriate tone for that character given like the rest of the episode. But I was saying about this with Jack, like I think that you could potentially have some game masters or some players that kind of would take a setting like this and maybe bring it to uncomfortable places. Like the whole idea of you have a woman walking around in a dangerous place. Like, I don't know. I I hope it goes without saying that people should have some boundaries, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, with themes of like sexual violence in their games and, you know, 
avoid that <laughs> like nope. definitely don't do that but i mean it's not just this episode there's other episodes of cowboy bebop that touch on sexual violence and i don't know if that's just not really something that i think most people probably 99.9 percent of people want in their rpg right there there are systems for that which is creepy and weird yeah. <laughs> it icks me out yeah yeah, there, there's a there's a undercurrent of sexual violence for Faye the entire episode, and it or the entire episodes, and um, mm-hmm. I'm glad that they didn't push into that. But obviously, if we played this out, there is going to be the table where this goes in a direction I don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a little like me personally when I DM, I also don't focus on romance at all if you want to do it go ahead but like i am i'm I'm going to immediately uh fade to black if you're going to do anything more heavy than kissing like i i'm a coward that way so uh well what's the liz lemon list what's the liz lemon list it's like a handshake five dollars a kiss on the cheek ten dollars end of list I don't know. This is just kind of like for me personally, Lee Joe, this is making me think about different ways I should make you feel uncomfortable in future sessions. (laughs) Bert is now going to try to romance every... He needs a new hat. Bert Bert needs a love hat. Yeah. I have have no problem with flirting and I have no problem with, you know, again, uh, there is a range of romance and sexuality that, you know, should be expressed. I also don't want, uh, I just don't want to deal with it, basically, is, uh, I don't, I, I, Meg, I know you are happily married, but I don't want you to fantasy flirt with me. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) Or, it it, it is funny, and again, this is, we are kind of taking a side here. Uh, so, we haven't mentioned, but Jack and Meg happen to be married. Um, but they never flirt with... Yeah, <laughs> they uh, they never they don't flirt with each other in game. They are very they 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 flirt with other characters. They flirt with NPCs, but they never they never flirt with each other, which is just funny to me. Which actually I, I do kind of appreciate. Yeah, but... I was gonna say nobody wants to see that. <laughs> exactly. I think I yes, I think that's fair. But yeah, it just goes down to like any kind of game where you have you know a game master. You have to like read the room. You know, you mm-hmm. gotta know like what kind of stuff you maybe I mean if there's some themes in an episode or in a setting that you feel like your table's not gonna like you gotta just not go there you should talk with the table right I think that that's yeah. the most important thing yeah, yeah just clear it up beforehand yep. if anything like that might be happening uh, it, it's all again it's it's that social contract it's you there is an unspoken level of uh, violence that is acceptable for everybody and then after that, you have to, you have to really talk it out. Same thing is I don't, I don't like injuring children characters when I DM. So I'll make it pretty easy to rescue them. Um, mm. And alternatively, in one session, we put my DMPC a a halfling boy uh, in danger of being taken by an abolith. But you know, obviously, I I made him a thrall of this abolith and then they did spend a good chunk of the campaign chasing after gilbert so you know it is it worked <laughs> out pretty back. well Your yeah. sweet baby boy <laughs> meg you mentioned earlier that you had an idea you'd want to see based on what you watched on cowboy bebop and what you've heard about our game something you'd think would be interesting to introduce into this yeah, so I was thinking about this idea of a mechanic that would encourage players to RP their their character style, and then I, you know, more ways to like really bring in the cowboy bebop essence into the tabletop game. And so I was thinking about this idea of like each character would be given a style dice that's kind of based on their character's personality. So. Um, if you're a character that's playing kind of like a Faye Valentine archetype, maybe you have a sultry dice. And so if you're like attempting to solve a problem where you're, you know, using your womanly wiles, um, <laughs> that could perhaps be like a D4. You know, the game master could say, all right, so this applies or using your sultry style. If, you're do- if you do it, you know, using the skill, you can 
roll and add a d4 to whatever your roll is. Mm -hmm. And those could change based on whatever character type you have. Like maybe uh, if you're playing like an iron character, you have a a cute dice or something like that. (laughs) A floof. Or, you know, (laughs) maybe Spike has a stubborn dice. I don't know. But (laughs) uh, that would just kind of, I think, enhance kind of the, get, get players really thinking about their character's personality. Right. I like how it ties a mechanic directly into your character type, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, thinking about it now, like it, it's very similar to we have an expertise system, right? So the idea before was that you know you have some preset skills and then an expertise it lets you have a bump up when it's specific to some like like if you are I think the example used before was if you are okay at flying. But really good at flying, like uh, the the Model T of the universe or whatever, right? a very specific type of vehicle. That that one has an expertise, so that role is different. That that skill is different. I like here that this is more based on your character's personality, right? That uh, maybe even uh, we could tie this into our pillars, like in your origin story. How did the world make you who you are? Or yeah, I think it's that second pillar. How did, how did the world make you who you are? may directly give you this die. It may give you this kind of bonus. Right. I I like the idea. Um, in fact, I but I do want to make it, you know, it has to be at the GM discretion because I would definitely not want something so vague that you can you can game it to every roll. Like, I don't think, <laughs> yeah. like you said, a sultry dice, I don't think I can sultrily <laughs> hack this computer, you know? Uh, oh, Mr. You computer. <laughs> No hey, matter maybe how you much catfish you... someone. Something, <laughs> yeah, <maybe. laughs> okay, but in, yeah, in that case, that's a whole yeah, that's a different story. And if that's you can fine. successfully argue why your character would use this to the DM uh, <laughs> to let it go through, I think that should would be fair. Uh, yes, I, I think that's fair. Um, so I'm thinking, yeah, maybe it has to be the GM discretion, or possibly, uh, like Wu was saying, uh, maybe make it part of the kind of expertise system we have. I, it makes me think of the system Kids on Brooms, uh, which we have a, a little bit of experience playing. So Dimension 20 plays various tabletop games, and one of them is Kids on Brooms, which is, you know, definitely not Harry Potter, uh, but it is, really. <laughs> anyway. Uh, you have your traditional roles, but if you're using um, if you're using magic, you have a special magic die to add to the rolls, and it's a D4. Dimension Twenty did the same thing. Uh, they actually added to that with a little bit of homebrew, where they had a uh, and you may need to bleep this uh, a common fucking sense die, where <laughs> if you're trying to inject real world logic, you could you could roll an additional D6. So. Uh, in any roll, you could roll up to all three die at one go. But in that sense, like we could have this kind of adjunct die for your skills. You know? Yeah. You know what else is helpful about that is because I do feel like these systems, I don't know what, what you've set your DC parameters are, mm-hmm. but I do feel like um, they're a little, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, you end up with all these huge modifiers, which make it sit so that you're passing the majority of your rolls. But these systems that you have where you're working with whatever the seven die or whatever, I feel like tend to be a little more neutral. Like you could fail as often as mm-hmm. you pass and that could be what you want, but I do think that like the additional like perk of being able to roll an extra dice for you know, for some situations could help with you know success in a pinch. <laughs> you yeah, too. I do like so generally one of the things, again, baby designers fighting Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know, raging against our parents, the the you know the <laughs> the player's manual five e, uh, the one of the things that I'm fighting as well here is modifiers, right? I, I think we've been very light on exactly like that idea that you roll a die and then you add something to like so that you're good at it, right? <laughs> right? Uh, I, I like the idea of making ex- an exception to that because of your character, because of role play. Like I think that's much more interesting to me than like, oh, my character on a sheet is better at swords now, so I got plus two more to the, that roll. Like, that's fine, right? But as far as, you know, a character is good at swords, but it's much more interesting when it's like, oh, my character has learned something new and is a better person now, so they get to roll a d4, <laughs> right? That's much cooler to me. <laughs> 
I mean, I think the other thing is I, I love, you know, the, the D&D system with the modifiers and everything and all the leveling, but it's complicated mm-hmm. and it's hard to keep track of. And a lot of times it does take you out of the moment because you're having to sit mm-hmm. there and reference this list of, <laughs> of things and you're like, oh, what is, where's, uh, where's that again? Okay. Yeah, I was curious how uh, you guys were planning on like uh, implementing like character like progression in mm. um in the game because you know in like typical D, you level you you gain access to new abilities as you get stronger but like in the world of cowboy bebop like your characters are essentially the same people throughout the story yeah uh, and maybe making like small like character growth things like that but like essentially i, d- I don't really it's hard for me to think like if the, if any anybody picks up like new like like skills or abilities throughout like the course of the story yeah, well, one of the things that shocked me about this rewatch, because, you know, it's been a while since I've watched this show, but one of the things was how, yeah, nobody nobody really grows or changes. Like, so much of the work <laughs> yeah. is done off screen, right? Like, it, it's mm-hmm. between episodes. It's, uh, one of the things in this episode I wanted to ask was, what do you think happened that made them all, what, what made Faye leave, right? Something had to have happened where they all started getting real mad at each other. And then once they land on Callisto face, like I'm out of here and, and Spike and Jet were already at each other's throats. Um, Spike at the beginning, talking to Ed in a way that's like, did you, you know, are are we, are we done yet? Or have you found it? Like he's, he's pissed off. (laughs) Like everybody is mad already, but that Mm -hmm. all happened off screen. (laughs) We didn't get to see what that was. We just jumped in when they're already mad. All throughout Cowboy Bebop, there's a lot of like implied things that you aren't shown explicitly uh, through on screen that you kind of have to infer from like the characters' personalities and how they're acting mm-hmm. with each other. Um, I was thinking about this because, you know, the first time I watched this episode, I I kind of like misremembered it. I thought mm. that Faye went off, and what I thought she was trying to get the bounty on Grant. Mm. I thought that's why she left off. And then rewatching it, I realized, oh, that's it's just a coincidence that mm-hmm. she's there. But then, you know, Gren makes that statement, you know, where he essentially is accusing Faye of pushing them away. Like, I mm. wonder if that's her motivation for leaving. Then, like, I feel like this is the episode, or I could be wrong because I've been rewatched in, in a couple months, but where she's starting to like kind of fall for Spike a little bit, and maybe mm. that's why she takes off because. You all, she also, in the end of the episode, she's thinking a lot about Julia, too. Yeah. This new character. So you can start to kind of get, like, the vibes that Spike is maybe a little yeah. something more to her. Julia is, is this, like, mysterious character that you're only given, like, bits and pieces about throughout the course of the show. Um, that, like, there's this whole, like, uh, mis- like mis- mystery, like, building up for her. Like, the other characters of in the bebop like want to know more about her like like <laughs> spike never gives up any information about himself to anybody and so you have like Faye and jet kind of wondering like who is this woman that has this hold on uh the essentially like the the main one of the main characters of the story right he, he's but, such a mystery but whenever it comes to julia is like oh he's yeah he's a dog wagging his tail yes. you know immediately like <laughs> that he's, yes. he's caught right mm-hmm one thing I love uh, in this episode is, I mean, you, Spike is just always like calm and cool, like almost like 100% of the time. But you see Spike rage like more mm. than he ever has at one point when he fights these thugs, when they insinuate that they think that he's vicious at one point. And it's like the angriest that you ever see him. He lashes out. He like, like destroys like 12 like thugs who are mm-hmm. fighting him. I think it's the, the angriest. Yeah, it's the biggest fight that he's Ha- like mm-hmm. it's the most vicious that we've ever seen him yeah, until he meets cowboy andy later in the series, but <laughs> up, up until this point uh it's the angriest he's ever been also there's a meme where that screen cap of does it look like i have money uh is, you know circulates twitter honestly every couple of weeks i, I love that <laughs> so <shot>. good <laughs> so good also can, can we take a little aside to talk about the fashion yes. in this episode <laughs> The the winterized version of all their outfits, like the pink puffy jacket on Spike. <laughs> like, have you guys ever seen a character in media ever rock a pink jacket like that? He's, he's got a confidence, I'll give you that. It's uh, <laughs> good. Jet's hat. Do you guys see he had Jet's hat in episode two? I think is he had like, like earmuffs. Was that the one or no? It's a kind of like traditional like Russian esque hat. Like it. Um, like I don't yeah. I don't know the name of the hat, but yeah. I mean, to be fair, Callisto is definitely shaped to be a Siberia slash Russian sort of location. Mm-hmm. And yet, Faye still wears her skimpy clothing. I mean, she's <laughs> I got a jacket, but 
That's what I was like. Couldn't Roll for sultry. Done a little bit something different with Faye's like outfit for this episode. They gave her a coat, but she like was only wearing it for like a brief moment. Uh, to bring it back to answer your question, how we handle character progression. Uh, what we have, so yeah, the same thing. Uh, Bebop characters don't grow in the same way that Dungeons and Dragons characters grow, or the way that the hero's journey works, right? Right. Uh, what we do instead is we gain experience through failure. I, I think that's the the main principle of our character prog- progression, where you've bottomed out. So something horrible has happened to you, and as a result, you've gained some sort of scar. You've gained some sort of, and you know, it doesn't have to be a physical scar, but something has affected you now, and now you have a robot arm, right? So, and a story associated with that robot, ro- robot arm, right? Uh, <laughs> you've got, so like, I, I like kind of the idea that all of these characters are, you know, why is Spike so good at fighting? Well, it's because things happened to him that forced him to become better and better at fighting, right? Things like that become your character. And one of the things is how—one of the things I really um, enjoy—Michael, our other co-host, used to say this a lot, where if it didn't happen at the table, it didn't happen. So by gaining those scars at the table with your friends— and knowing, oh, they're good at this thing now, or they have this robot arm now. Mm. And you all know the history of that arm, and you all know why they have it, and you all know why they're good at using it. Because you were there when it happened. You were there when yeah. they lost that arm. It makes it more impactful for the players at the table. Yeah. Being there for that moment when they gained that scar. Because let's be real, no one is going to read your five-page backstory. It, it's not going to happen. You work so hard I'm, a, I'm your DM, and I've never read any of your backstories. What? You haven't? How dare you? I skimmed it. I'm... This is why none of the characters from my history have made an appearance in the show. <laughs> what about Bert's wife? Bert has a wife? No, I'm just That's where he got the love hat. <laughs> Yeah. We we absolutely need a better name, uh, but that being said, uh, yeah. So again, just to recap, we've we've talked about this a little bit, but Dungeons and Dragons is a, kind of a zero to hero uh, progression system, and uh, it, it as we mentioned at level twenty, you can do anything you want, right? It's not it's not particularly challenging, or if it is challenging, like the the scope of it kind of feels inconsequential at a certain point. It's like a J.J. Abrams film, right? Like, it's just, oh, at the end of the world again, here we go. (laughs) It's kind of the Marvel problem, right? Uh, After you save the universe, what else is left? Well, we can save all the universes now. So (laughs) it's, it is like when you, whenever they try to scale it back down to something more human, more, more, you know, down to earth, it, it feels like a, like, like you're backpedaling. It's not particularly, it feels it feels weird, even if lower stakes generally is a more intimate story. Like we have to go back to saving cats now. Like, uh, <laughs> who got yeah, but, lost? but the, the, the cats are also um, infinity stones, so it, it all works out. Uh, <laughs> see, see, the plot it's is revealed. <laughs> Deeper plot. That's funny. We're on to you, Marvel. <laughs> I had another random question sure. about mechanics. If we have time for that, yeah. Um, have you guys? talked about the concept of using red eye at all very briefly very briefly in the first episode and it never came back up right is this so red red eye has come up a handful of times in the series and i think this is the first time that it's been prominent again since the first episode Mm -hmm. uh i think exactly what i said last time was that well since it was in the show that means you have to be able to use drugs (laughs) and uh remembering asimov in that episode uh, it has to juice you up and have some sort goes, of terrible come down, right? Like it's, yeah, <laughs> it has to exist now. It goes so, berserk, yeah. So yes, we have to have drug use in the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. We I rewatched the series with Meg like a couple months ago, and uh, I only thought that Red Eye was was only like very briefly mentioned. Like I I only remember it really from the first episode in Asteroid Blues, but then like on sub like 
I noticed it more and more in multiple episodes. Like it's it's on it's actually sitting on a table at one point in a mm-hmm. flashback in the in these two episodes. Um, that brought up a question for us: Who was the one that was using the red eye? Was it Spike? Was it Julia? Was it Vicious? Again, it's mm. just it's up for the you know, <laughs> watcher's interpretation. You don't know, but it's there. But yeah, this whole episode uh, is kicked off because uh, uh, Gren is trying to get mm-hmm. to Vicious. They have a um, like a shipment, or, or uh, like they have some red eye that they're trying to sell, and they contact Vicious. Like through the Red Dragon Syndicate. Yeah, like so she Red Eye. Essentially, the Red Red Eye shows up every time the Syndicate shows up. Like it is their. It seems to be their core economy, right? Like that. That's their <laughs> yeah. racket. Which is this the first time that you actually get to meet the Van, like the Elders Council of the Red Dragon, in the beginning of uh, the first episode of Jupiter Jazz? I believe so. They uh, we saw Mao Yenrai in, in the introduction mm-hmm. to Vicious. But yeah. did they vaguely did they vaguely show up in the episode where they fight in the church again like in in Spike's flashbacks? I can't remember. Battle of Fallen Angels. Yeah. No, I, I don't think that they're. Uh, I don't want to be wrong, but I, I don't think that they're in that episode. I think yeah. this might be the first time that you see them. We we the first time we see the syndicate as a like their political their the governing head, body the head right? of the, yeah. the organization. Yeah, they're yeah. kind of like a, a little bit more developed in this episode. Yeah. I always think of this. I always think of uh, these two episodes as like the only like uh, like one of the few like plot episodes in mm-hmm. Cowboy Bebop. Like a lot of the other ones are kind of standalone adventures, but between this Battle of Fallen Angels and then the final two episodes, those are like the only main like syndicate plot episodes. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of like brings you to think like how would you guys work the syndicate into the game? Like, are they going to pop up, you know, through various bounties or? Um, maybe some characters have backstories that are tied mm-hmm. to the syndicate, like Spike. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just like, when it comes down to it, it may be down to the GM's discretion. Mm-hmm. We may need to create a campaign for to help some newbie uh, GMs out, but I think when it comes down to it, you always add a secret society uh, with a grain of salt because either they'll either your players will be way too interested in it. Or they won't be interested at all. They'll never go there. (laughs) You'll you'll spend hours building it out. (laughs) They'll just never encounter it. (laughs) They won't be interested enough. They'll shoot shoot the guy and then leave. Or they'll take the bounty and leave. Um, So that is always the concept. It's it's always one of those things you have to think about in terms of, well, will the syndicate retaliate? Will they they hunt you down? They will. (laughs) <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Um, and again, you, you make these tough choices. Spike, Spike, like uh, Spike was friends with Lynn, uh, you know, and he had to make decisions of whether he would attack Lynn because he wanted to murder Vicious. Mm-hmm. And and things don't go so well for Lynn in this in these series of episodes. But uh, yeah, it, it's always again when it comes to players. I, I think that players always want to make the good choice, but it is always better to kind of give them... Uh, it is always interesting to give them a gray choice, because it's in the, in the real world, you don't get just good and just bad. It's not, you know, a video game where... One of my... I love Persona 5. I, I love the Persona series, but they they always make the, the bosses, the bad guys, so unredeemably evil. Comic. Comically, like, comically so. <laughs> uh, there is no, there's no questioning the activities you're doing, which is effectively mm-hmm. uh, brainwashing them. Effectively, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So but it's for good. We're the good guys. It's yeah. it's all it's always the right thing to do, and so I always like nuance, and that's that's great. But it's difficult. It's definitely mm-hmm. not something mm-hmm. easy to be that can be done by most people. And I think that a lot of the the antagonists in this this story are that like nuanced, like they have depth to them. There's like more reasoning to why they do things that they do. I think one of the, and you know, again, helping out newbie GMs is a, a good principle for any game design. But one of the things we will need to do is uh, set up a how to build a bounty system, right? Something that. Well, you know, uh, summarizes well, what are the most interesting things we find about 
people to hunt and then how do we make players feel well you know whatever you want them to feel right like how do we make feel, players feel conflicted or maybe this week it's just a straight up oh yeah they're they're a murder robber person and we have to and they you know kick puppies on the way to work so we have to take them in right like <laughs> like it's obvious obviously there's a bad guy <laughs> uh, you know and, and it may vary week to week right what you'd like to do sure yeah so just like a question on that are you gonna like prepare like okay well here's like a pack of like here's a bounty you might find them on this planet there's these realities about these this planet if they're going here and you know now there's the story or maybe like here's a few npcs or is it just going to be more free form than that even so i I guess i'd reverse this question on on you folks since you're all uh dungeon masters here uh, what do you like to see in a book that you bought off the shelf? Would you, if you purchased a Cowboy Bebop module, like, do you want it to be full of all the details? And well, I mean, I guess if it was Cowboy Bebop specifically, I know Jack would want it with all the details you could possibly get. Uh, it's true. But as a as a dungeon master, as a game master, would you want it to be open to? Uh, Would you want it to be more open to give you just toys to play with? Or do you want it to be directed and say, these are all the things? Yeah, I think having something equivalent of like like a job board, I think that's like pre-built would be super helpful. It doesn't have to necessarily have everything in there, but like some suggested quests Mm -hmm. to get things started, Mm -hmm. I think, would be really good and yeah, some like sample builds yeah and they could be on different planets and stuff so that would get like the party and the gm like acquainted to different worlds mm-hmm. um and then you know th- then it would be up to them if they want to you know make their own or whatever the mm-hmm. story could go in different directions from there but i think that one thing you would have to be worried about with some groups is that they'd have a dm that would just like copy like everything that happens in the episode which like <laughs> if you've watched the show like that would not be that interesting to play <laughs> you'd be like yeah except for i know what's gonna happen that, that is so that is the eternal struggle of i think a work of adaptation is just that <laughs> oh yeah like on the one hand, I'm playing this because I just want to be Spike and I just want to do cool things. Uh, on the other hand, like, oh, but that's not very interesting at all to anybody, <laughs> to the person running it, to the person playing it. It's like, ultimately, this is not, I could have just watched the show and it would have taken 22 minutes. Sure, <laughs> yeah. The real power of a DM is to adapt something. Basically, you're going to steal something and then you're going to just twist it enough that it's not the same thing, where... Uh, it's you know an anime you watched or a book you read or a video game. Uh, you cannot use the exact same details, but you tweak it a little bit, and suddenly it's good enough to play. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but going back to the, the the book question, I'm I'm always a person who would who likes a super detailed campaign, and then I would like the option to change it as as I see fit. So uh, you know I've played. Uh, I've run several different of the official campaigns for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you know, we've done like uh, Dragon of Ice Fire Peak. We did Storm King's Thunder. We were, you know, dabbling with Curse of Strahd. Uh, and you know, Dragon of Ice Fire Peak has a job board, which is nice. And then they also give you a, a quick description of the place and what's going on, and you know the problems you might face. And then they leave you to do uh, to kind of react to what the the players are going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Storm King's Thunder, it it gives you a like thirty page chapter uh, called the Savage Frontier, and it's just descriptions of cities, and then you, it's up to you mm-hmm. to make the make the fun. And sometimes <laughs> it's easy, and sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes it's just hell. Uh, and, and sometimes and, you build a guild hall in Yartar. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it happens, you know. But yeah, once once they finally got the once they finally got to the thread, I could get back to the main story. But yeah, you you tend to wander. And the thing is, if they're having fun, who cares, right? Like, uh, as long as they're enjoying playing D anD D, like you don't need a Machiavellian plot going down, you know. It's <laughs> right, right. <laughs> sometimes it's just fun to accidentally chop off a, you know. A troll, you know, chop their head off or something. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. I really liked the. I like used a bunch of different like resources when I was building out the Carceri campaign that we ran, and I really like this one that just had, you know, a lot of different ones. will just start off with like a page just describing like the setting and just different unique mechanics of the place. But 
like it'll have a hook in each region, you know? So here's something that might like grab the characters mm. and make them go there. So I think like having those hooks in your case would be like different bounties across the solar system mm. that would encourage exploration so they don't spend like their whole time on Mars or whatever. Right, and there's so many interesting environments that are like given to you throughout the course of the story. Like this city in Callisto here is like a industrial, like economically depressed like area. And then you have Venus, you could go to Mars, you can go to Earth and see what like after it being ravaged by the astral gate accident um and it'd be interesting to like like be chasing bounties and interacting with like your unique like characters that you've created like with each other in these like worlds that have been like already like you've experienced through watching the show Uh, ultimately i've mentioned before that our target audience is sort of like people that are interested in cowboy bebop more than they have been interested in tabletop gaming historically and that idea is that, oh, you start with the template of the show. Mm-hmm. But, and you know, in your first adventure, it's almost certainly just going to be Asteroid Blues straight, right? Like, like if, if this is your first time running a game for your friends and you love Cowboy Bebop, it's like, oh, we're just doing, you're all hunting down this drug dealer on, on Tijuana, right? Just because. Hunt, hunting for small fries on TJ. Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. And that's fine, right? Because that, that's your first time doing it. That's perfectly fine. And yeah. I think in the process of doing that, you'll say, oh, I want to try this other stuff. Or my party did this instead. How do I deal with that? And I think that's how you grow, right, as a game master. Like, you learn to improvise. You learn to adapt. You learn to uh, – you learn that, yeah, I can't just put the TV show I liked and put it on the <laughs> table and hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you guys wanted to talk about like the different ships that are introduced in this oh, sure. episode. I know we mentioned that before. There's a couple cool ones, I think. With the ships, I know Gren had that cool like eyeball ship, right? It looks like yes. an iris, right? <laughs> so many. I I've noticed it more and more. So many of like the personal ships, like the uh, have that like like glass pod that are mm. affixed to like a metal design in different ways, like mm. like. Um, Jets is like sitting inside of the hammerhead. Like um, Phase is like it, like sidled like between those the two arms. Like essentially, uh, uh, Spike has his own style as well. Like and, and uh, that pod, that glass pod is really interesting to me. That they have in all of the, every one it's of like the a prefabricated designs. like thing that you mm-hmm. like. Like there's some some cockpit seller that's just yeah. like oh yeah here's your standard cockpit do whatever you it want. Seems with like it seems like it's designed to be easily like just detached like an emergency situation which mm-hmm. you see in a couple episodes like in Heavy Metal Queen. What was that with Vicious's ship too? It was all angles what I'm Yes, what that's, I, I I wrote that it was like it looked like a very sharp triangle like uh, <laughs> a very sharp like a cute triangle. Yeah. It's to emphasize his swords, mm-hmm. I suppose, right? <laughs> yeah. It had that like off white color like his hair or like essentially, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, if you're getting into like ship mechanics in the show, I mean, or in the game, I guess, you know, that design would be like the speedier one, whereas like the mm. the round one would be like you've better perception in it kind of thing. Mm, yeah. When I was thinking about the ships, it's like every major character has their like cool personal ship. Like, and I was like thinking about like uh, making a character in the game. Like, as you like design your character, like, are you picking like your ship to be used? Like, in in the situations where you you might need one. Like, are you also like designing like your own what your own ship would look like and what's what weapons you're bringing with that? Essentially, what its capabilities are. <laughs> I can tell that Jack really wants this. He looks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like part of, yeah 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 because that can that's also like uh i don't know like my getting your like creative juices and like what would this character be like riding in essentially right yeah it, it is an it is it's kind of like a, a like a pet or a familiar in other games right yeah it's like yeah. oh what is it is not it, it is not me but it is an extension of me right like and i think definitely. that is important definitely yeah we don't see too many like duplicate ships or like off the shelf ships right like every, yeah. everybody's got a custom and they get their own unique names that are all cool yeah. too <laughs> you get to name your familiar slash ship it's like owning a boat mm-hmm. uh, i again as i've mentioned before you know we're we're probably not a vertical progression sort of 
game where you'll you'll noticeably be have better stats as you progress but i think more again like a horizontal progression where maybe we will reward you with ship upgrades that'll let you do more things maybe you know maybe you'll get a base model to begin with and then mm. you know will you can you can purchase uh, better better weapons or better engines or more you know fuel efficient power cells or whatever uh, alternatively again as i mentioned before maybe maybe you know you the major your major ship could have a better uh, canteen so you you mm-hmm. feel more prepared or better sleeping quarters you know they there's a lot that can be done without just straight leveling to make you feel more powerful mm-hmm. um, but it is also very complicated and i think that's one of the things that i'm still trying to wrap my head around about what i'd like to do did you want to get, get into that last thing that you wanted to bring up with the yeah, items? Your, your item list? Oh, yeah, definitely. We could talk about some of those. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, um, just like the different like items that are encountered throughout the mm-hmm. episode. The, f- the first thing that I uh, wanted to talk about was the uh, tranquilizer gun that sure. Lynn uses. Um, I don't know if you guys had, I mean, I immediately, I thought like, if you needed to be bringing like bounties in alive, like, uh, it's, perfect, it's one, right? yeah. it's a great, it's a great method to do that. Also, I think it's interesting that like, I mean, that's how the episode ends with Spike being shot and mm-hmm. you find out in the next episode that it was a tranquilizer gun. And that it's also interesting to me, like story wise that like, why would Lynn shoot, uh, mm-hmm spike with a tranquilizer gun but it's kind of revealed that he used to work under spike in uh spike's days in the syndicate and so like you kind of wonder if like lynn never really wanted to kill or injure mm-hmm. spike in the first place there's like still an attachment there do you think vicious knows that it was a tranquilizer gun <clears throat> i was wondering about that too and um honestly i don't I, my first thought was like i think that Vicious wants another chance to fight Spike himself. Like he wouldn't want he wouldn't want somebody else to kill like out out and out kill Spike. So I don't know. I, I think he would this be disappointed if he was actually dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe he maybe he knew it was a tranquilizer and uh, he was going to uh, just uh, table that for a later time, <laughs> a later encounter that we might see in the future. Tranquilizer guns and stun batons are great, and they're fun, especially if you're going for that whole non-lethal thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But they can be a crutch, and that is something that I, I do want to balance with some sort of, you know, with all the pros of non-lethal approaches, maybe there needs to be a con. Like, perhaps it only works at a certain range, or maybe, uh, you know, there are some checks you have to go through. Because My, my first thought was that it's expensive. So, so far, we've yeah. never mm-hmm. seen one until now until the syndicate is involved mm-hmm. right like, how come not every bounty hunter has one probably because it's incredibly pricey mm-hmm. and just from like a pharmacology perspective you know you shoot somebody who's too big with it uh <laughs> shoot and it doesn't work shoot, shoot someone who's too small with it and they die <laughs> <laughs> yeah you gotta you need to dose them before <laughs> <laughs> There were a lot of like metal weapons being used as well. Mm. There was like a metal axe, like metal pipes. There was like some type of like light fixture that they were using in combat, oh, like yeah. to try to fight. Uh, that spike. gang's weapons. They the, were the like the gang. They're very unique, like metal saw. weapons. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. The red eye that was featured in this episode, and also there was the first time you saw like a red eye, like quality, like detector. <laughs> I noted that too. Yeah. Uses. <laughs> Because you don't like, have to just inject it into your eye to prove I, that it's I know. Real I was like, I was like, what are you doing, Lynn? Check this the real way. Like, <laughs> as we see uh, Asimov do in the first episode, they say he said it was like an EX plus rating or something. Like, whatever that <laughs> yeah. means. Like after we read that, that was funny. The ratings go. It's like a it's <clears> like a JRPG, right? Like so, you're C B A S S plus, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the one item that I wanted to note was uh, cell phones. Like, this is the first episode where we see everybody on the crew using, like, a handheld communicator. It's a transmitter. Yes, that's true. Like, uh, in the... Again, we don't talk about the uh, Netflix show too often, like... But that being made 20 years later, in a world where everybody has a cell phone and lives on their cell phone, necessitated that everybody in that show has a cell phone, right? Because it's the future. And it was one thing I noted... That in this show, we've never—it was never really made super clear. Like, how do they communicate to each other? What is their? 
When they're not in their ships, how do they talk to each other? In my notes, I I recorded like, oh, Jet has one. Because he tries to call, when he's at the bar the first time, he's like, Mm -hmm. hey, Spike, there's this, oh, right, we're fighting. So he puts it away. Yeah, he he forgets Uh, that they were in a a fight at that moment. Yeah, uh, which I love that, yeah. Uh, Vicious, when when he calls Gren and leaves a voicemail, which I love on a machine. There's a voicemail machine. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Recording, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Kids may not recognize what that is, but you used to have to rewind the <laughs> tape so that you could get your messages. But yeah, that uh, Vicious has a cell phone. It's like almost exactly the same design. And then finally, Spike uses one, I think near the end. Was it Spike? Maybe it was Faye. But yeah, they're like they all have one, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. And one of the things that we were talking about with the episode or with the show is that uh, Jack was talking about how much he loves the retro futurism vibe, mm-hmm. like th- that it's '90s, but it's also the future. But mm-hmm. if you lean too hard into like the cell phones and stuff, it does kind of take you out of that that right. '90s vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the balance we need to find is that it is it is 2077 via 1998. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love it. It's great. Uh, Jack, Meg, thank you for being here. If you want to see more of Jack and Meg playing Dungeons & Dragons with us, uh, it feels weird to plug my own Twitch channel, but check us out on twitch.tv slash woofiregotpower. We, again, semi-regularly play Dungeons & Dragons there. Yep. Yeah, let us know when uh, we get to test out this beta version of this game. Yeah, we'll be there. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> it is very difficult to get six grown adults with jobs and responsibilities together to play a game about make believe, but we do try to get it done once a week yeah. and it's not Have all, we we're not always problem? successful. <laughs> <laughs> Next week we are talking session fourteen of Cowboy Bebop, Bohemian Rhapsody. So come on by, hang out and waste your life with us. Do you have a comrade? I'm your comrade. (laughs) My comrade at arms, yes. Yes. We've been RPG comrades for years now. Thanks for listening. If you've got questions, suggestions, or if you're starting your own Bebop Tabletop session, you can reach us on Twitter, at Bebop Tabletop. Got it. I'll start uh, designing my ultra cringy uh, Spike Spiegel archetype character. Can't wait. Right Can't now. wait. <laughs> Your Shadow the Hedgehog bounty hunter. Got it. I'm yes. going to start designing my like really impossible to play with data dog character. <laughs> oh, no. Communication. This is not zero. viable at all. Intelligence 20. <laughs> Roll for floof. <laughs> yeah, exactly.